Hi. Howdy, people. I feel spoiled. Now I'm recording in New York because I am here for work to be on set for my episode. And usually at home, we have these like microphone stands that hold our microphone for us. And it has been three minutes of recording and my fingers are cramping already because I have to hold my microphone myself. And I know that's a first world problem, but... I'm feeling it. And we did it. I mean, we did do it for like I know. two and a half years. <laughs> How? How did we do it? <laughs> Until Eric sent us stands and was like, please, please stop moving around. <laughs> We've been spoiled. Yeah. You look like the epitome of a New York worker right now. You're laying in your hotel bed. <laughs> you're in a robe. And then you have your microphone in your hand covered by a sock. Yeah. To uh, drown out some of the extra noise. Which could look inappropriate. Doesn't look right. Mm, yeah <laughs> it looks exactly what you think it looks like in a sock it's kind of like i'm holding a yeah yeah it's yeah it's strange but, <laughs> you know sometimes we have to make do with what we have and i forgot to bring my little puff thing that goes on top to prevent all the yeah no this is great adaptability it's the yeah. theme of 2020 and 2021 yeah i also feel like i'm living a home alone lifestyle just today when I'm not working. When I'm working, I'm like literally on set for like 15 plus hours. But today was luxury. I liked the other day when you were headed to set at night. Like I was ready <laughs> to wind down and go to bed. And you were like, oh, yeah, I already ordered Indian food to get to my uh, hotel room at 6 a.m. when I returned from set. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I love Indian food, but 6 a.m., man. For me, it, felt, it would have felt like 10 p.m. True, true. Yeah. Your body was ready to eat a dinner type food it, at the end of your day. Yeah, exactly. That's actually an interesting question. I wonder anyone out there who works night shifts, do you do like a do you still abide by the breakfast, lunch, dinner yeah. order? What do you do? Do you do breakfast when you wake up at like four PM and then dinner at I don't know. I mean that's what I've been doing. Six eight AM when you get off. That's I'm how curious. I've been living. Oh, this is two girls, one ghost. Two girls. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hey. And I'm Sabrina. And after our encounters last week, we were like, all right, let's wine. What are you drinking? I am drinking. Okay. So I went to Costco sometime in like November and got their advent calendar of wines and they're essentially half bottles. So it's like, I think they're supposed to be two glasses in each. So I got this one. Would I recommend it? No, (laughs) I would not. It's called Chateau Cap de Biolette. Can I see it? It is a Bordeaux. I don't, I don't know if Bordeaux. I like Bordeaux or if it's just that this one's a little more vinegary for mm. me. Mm-hmm. But guess what I did learn? What? Okay. On TikTok. <laughs> Something I learned on TikTok. <laughs> of course. Which, by the way, we have a TikTok now. We just haven't put anything on it and yet. Corinne so, is in charge of that because I was she, she brought it up to me and I was just like, I have literally no idea how to work TikTok, <laughs> so this is all on you. I want to be a creator. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. What I learned on TikTok is that... You know, the foil that is on top of most wine bottles and normally use a foil cutter Mm -hmm. or college time when we were a little more ratchet, we would literally just put the wine opener on and just Uh let the cork figure its way out of the foil. You can put your fist, your whole hand around the entire foil and pull the whole thing off. You didn't know this? No. Wow. (laughs) Okay, I guess I don't need TikTok. I'm informed already. You already know all of that. Why didn't you share this with me? I don't know. I just thought it was like a thing. No, I've been foil cutting. I just started foil. I bought a good foil cutter this past year because I was like, I got to get classy. I can't keep ripping it out. Mm. You can just pull the whole foil off. I've never seen it before. (laughs) 
it changed my life. Some bottles are hard to do it too. If people come over, I might still do the foil thing because I feel like it's kind of like a nice little, look at me, I'm bougie. Yeah, you bought it. But alone, using my hand. (laughs) Some of them are hard and then it becomes a challenge. But I am drinking 19 Crimes. Let's see who's the killer. Oh, love 19 Crimes. Um, Don't say who the killer is on the bottle. You have to use you have to use the the app that they have. If anyone doesn't know, there's a particular app which I can't remember the name of, but for 19 crimes and other wines, on this app, you open up the app and open up the camera inside of the app, point it at the label, and the label will come alive and tell you uh-huh. things. So if you point it at 19 crimes, the criminals on 19 crimes, which by the way are are based on the 19 crimes that you could be sent essentially banished to Australia back yeah. in the day for. These people come alive on the wine bottle and they're like, ah, my name is John, blah, blah, blah. And I, I went was, to blah, blah, blah. I murdered seven people. Yeah, it's very cool. It's really cool. It's the coolest. It feels very Harry Potter, doesn't it? It does. You know when they're like right. reading the newspaper and like the newspaper? everything's alive? That's our version of magic in this life. Oh, oh my God. I saw my sister because she lives in Hoboken and is fully vaccinated because she works in emergency medicine. I saw her and immediately we were like what should we do and we're like let's watch harry potter so we just sat on the couch and i haven't (laughs) seen her in like a year so we just sat on the couch and like talked and watched harry potter and i was like this is the best day ever uh there's a a bar in new york let me figure out the harry potter bar what's it called it's like the cauldron or something someone emailed it to us let's see essentially you have like a little harry potter wand and i only got like a five second clip but you point it it's called the cauldron the cauldron. Okay, cool. And they have the dry ice, so there's like smoking, bubbling, all these drinks and concoctions. It looks so sick. I just love places like that. I really mm-hmm. like unique restaurants. Not to shit on LA at all. I'm not doing that <laughs> now. But you but, might a little bit. But there was about like a year and a half or two year span when I was living in LA. So, Serena, you were there too. Yeah. Where every single restaurant became like the same exact aesthetic. There was yeah. no diversity. Like it was just like this trend of black and white and, and plants everywhere and some sort of painted mural. And everyone had the same thing. I feel like that's how the housing like remodel market is too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you'll fo- you'll follow like on Instagram and a lot of people are same trends in the same time and then like in two years, it's all going to change, but everyone's going to change to the same thing. I know. It's like one of the, you know, when we look at houses now and we're like, oh my God, that this, it's so 70s, the 70s carpet, or like, uh-huh. oh wow, what a 90s kitchen. Yeah. That's what we're going to think that in 10 years, yeah. being like, oh my God, that's such a like late 2010s. One thing I hope never comes back though is carpet in the bathroom. It, was that a thing? That I don't even thing. remember that. That's not okay. One of my friends like just bought a house, or one of my coworkers just bought a house and like, the bathrooms all have carpets in them. And she was like, the first thing that's going is the carpet. It's, I mean, just for safety. I mean, like black mold central. Mold. Hello. Everywhere. Yeah. Not. Oh. You know what? I don't know if this is a trend or if it's just something that I've been seeking out and the algorithm keeps sending me more of because I on like TikTok? it every time I see it. On on Instagram, Pinterest, all of, all <laughs> of them. They all have algorithms. They're all getting to know me. And I appreciate it because they send me more of what I like. Five years ago, everyone was doing like the white subway tile yeah. in their kitchens. Mm-hmm. And I've been seeing a lot of essentially subway tile or like brick, but it's these uneven raw stones. So they all kind of come mm-hmm. out at different different levels. It just, I don't know, it kind of looks like if you were walking through like Spain, I guess, it looks like the side of a building, but it's just in your kitchen and it feels very, I don't know. I've never been to Napa, but it feels <laughs> like Napa to me. <laughs> wow. 
That sounds nice. I'm into it. Now I just need a house. Yeah. That would be nice. My hotel is like very, very spooky vibes. Like truly the lighting that I have right now, I have every single light on in in the place and this is how bright it is. It's very dark. It's very dark. And the floors are black. The cabinets are black. The doors are black. In the hallways, it's all black wallpaper. So it's very spooky. And right before I came here, I watched the Cecil Hotel. I was just going to say, you're making me think of American Horror Story Hotel, which was based on Cecil. Mm -hmm. And I just watched that doc. And granted, this hotel is is like so, so, so nice. But after watching that, it's just in my head, like the water being dirty. And then the, the poor, poor couple who was just drinking it and then bathing in it. And then to find out that there was a body in the water tank. So now oh. I'm so nervous to <laughs> drink the tap water. Oh, God. Yeah. It's rough. But that's, yeah. I'm sure you're fine. I mean, no, I what are the chances? I feel like that's once in a lifetime. Absolutely. It's just in my head. And I, you it's know, in your head. I yeah. get, I overthink things. And, and so then I have nightmares about it. And then I can't get it out of my head. Oh, gosh. Yeah. We are, I cycle. wish I could remember the name of the hotel that I was staying at with my family a few years ago. I can't remember exactly where we were, but I think we were somewhere in Europe, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. But it looked so much like The Shining indoors on the interior. And I made a comment about it. I think I said like red rum or something. And my mom was so spooked that whenever we were in separate rooms and whenever she needed to go up to the room, she would have me and my brother walk her to the room if my dad wasn't with her. She's like, I'm not not going alone in The Shining (laughs) Hotel anymore. (laughs) No, thanks. That's fair. Scary. Very spooky. Very. But that's what we're here to do. We Be are. spooky. And we we have stories to tell you. We are talking ghost towns. And this is a topic picked by John, who is one of our Patreon, Patreon donors. What? One of our patrons yeah. on, patron Patreon. on Patreon. <laughs> it was like, you know when Twitter came out and you, people were like, I tweeted or I, I, twi- Twittered, I Twittered you. Yeah. yeah. Just learning all the. It's it's hard. And words are tied. hard. But John gave us ghost towns and we were like, oh my God, this is going to be such a fun topic. So much fun. And I also just read the book Outlaws or Outlawed by Anna North and it's so good. Mm -hmm. So I was like so in the mood for like the Wild West and like the gold rush and outlaws and bootlegging and well, not bootlegging, (laughs) but just like all of the, yeah, that whole era is so fascinating and like lawlessness and just madness. I know. So I decided to do a town called... Benack, Montana. And let me tell you, this story has gold, greed, cowboys, deceit, murder, lots and lots of murder. And it was the making of the Wild Wild West and eventually the makings of a very haunted ghost town in Beaverhead County, Montana. So there is a small stream of water, a trickling, babbling creek called Grasshopper Creek, and it runs through Beaverhead County. And it banks in a small little ghost town that is called Banak. This stream of water became the source of a boom that reshaped the boundaries of the Northern Rockies. And as some of you may or may not remember from middle school history class, I personally did not and had to look it up. The major U.S. gold rush began in 1848 with settlers rushing to California to find gold. And it stimulated worldwide interest in looking for gold. And this money supply reinvigorated the American economy. So it's a huge part of American history. And also, I mean, once you hear gold and money, it's the same way like we are about the lottery nowadays, where it's like, let's buy lots of lottery tickets to try to win all the money in the world. So many people at this time are like, gold will make me rich. So they are following the flocks of people to find gold, get their hands on it. 
And over time, the gold rush spread through the country. So in 1862, a man named John White decided to embark on a long journey into practically uncharted territory to find a new place for gold. This endeavor towards discovering Banach was very poorly documented. And like in in history, a lot of the, the gold rush, like, you know, the people who led the journeys would you know, journal or they'd have other people documented in their written down. There are written testaments that have allowed Mm -hmm. us to tell those stories in history. But John White failed to document any of this. So like, it's very hard (laughs) to know the details specifically. But basically, I imagine their journey was, which gives me a lot of creative freedom here. So this is not based in fact. Take it, take it where (laughs) you want it. (laughs) This part, at least. So I imagine their journey was very similar to the game Oregon Trail, if you remember that from middle school. Mm -hmm. I think everyone remembers that more than the year that the gold rush started. But what is known is that John White formed a group and they called themselves the Pike Peakers, which I love that they just like gave themselves a name and that everyone knows the group name, but they don't know anything else about like how they got there and like what their travel was like. I feel like that would be such a good name for a craft beer company that was in the that gold rush area of California. So if anyone's looking to get into beer, that's a good name. Pike Peakers. Have you had the beer from Pike Peak? It's a great name. Right? I'm going to Pike like Peak it. Brewery. Yeah. Great. Well, we can always get into that if we want. TM. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I want to cry every time you say it. It's so funny. <laughs> TM. <laughs> so John White and the Pike Peakers traversed rocky landscapes and deserts and mountains with very little food and very little water until they came upon a small creek, which at the time was named Willard Creek by the Lewis and Clark Expedition in 1805. But since then, it can, had otherwise been unexplored by settlers, and I'd be remiss if I did not mention that as with so much of American history and so much of American land, while it wasn't occupied by settlers, it was occupied at the time, and there was the tribe, the Banach Indians, and as white settlers did and continue to do, they just took the land for themselves. So that is an important part of the history to note. Anyway, John White and the Pike Peakers arrived at the creek on July 28, 1862, and it was then that John discovered gold in the stream. So what happened next is unclear, but almost overnight, a mining camp was constructed and the news like spread all over the country and it led to the greatest gold rush to the West since the California gold rush in 1848. So like almost 18 years, you know? Yeah. That's also interesting because I, that's another thing we don't learn in school. We learn like California gold rush. Everyone goes. Yeah. But you, you really envision it as this like one big massive migration to the West. I didn't realize that there were these other events that kind of spurred Mm -hmm. group, different groups to come over many decades. Yeah. Yeah. I think even I was looking up very briefly that there are still, I guess gold rush is not the right word, but there are still people who like flock to places for gold and like they're still discovering it and and finding it in similar manners. But yeah, there were a bunch of different periods of the gold rush. Also, after analyzing the gold that was found in this little stream or creek, whatever it's called, they determined it was the most pure gold ever to be found. So it was 99.5% pure compared to like the other gold had been 95% pure. So it was a big deal. People were like, this is the gold of all gold. It is first place gold prize gold, and (laughs) we want it. So the discovery of gold in Banach led to the establishment of the state Montana Territory, and Banach actually served as the capital for two years until another city, which 
or a town, which I failed to write down, but also is not the topic of this episode. So you can Google it if you'd like, um, took over as, as capital. But so by October of 1862, more than 400 prospectors lived in tents, caves, dugouts, shanties, huts, and wagons, all itching to get their hands on this gold. And Banach was extremely remote. So it was only connected to the rest of the world by like one trail. And mm. it was extremely perilous and came with many dangers. But of course, you know, you hear the best gold in the world and people are going to come flocking. So there are a lot of I know. I, I wonder the ranking of – so you said like caves, shanties, uh-huh. carriages, like all of that. I wonder the ranking of what people liked. You know, like now we'd say, oh, maybe depending on your materials, maybe sleeping in a tent is better than sleeping in the back of your car. Right. I wonder back in the day what people were like, oh, you got a top-notch uh, setup. You found a cave? Damn. Dang. <laughs> I wish I had a cave. <laughs> Um, I guess we'll have to get a time machine and find out. Just astral project, find oh a little gosh. wrinkle in time, head back. That'd be see fun. What's up. Sounds dangerous, but I'm open to trying it. <laughs> Danger zone. Danger zone. That just made me think of AutoZone. <laughs> that commercial that always comes on the radio. Mm-hmm. So, so many people were traveling to Banak, but because, like I said, it's so perilous of a trek, people were ill-equipped and unprepared for the like the weather the conditions and like the types of landscape that they had to traverse to get there. And so, so many people perished along the way and those who didn't made it and tried to like, you know, make a life for themselves and make themselves get rich. Uh, People, some people traveled by foot, some traveled by horseback, stagecoach, wagon, steamboat, many different ways. But by 1863, the settlement had increased to 3000 residents. So in just like a year, it went from, one man discovering this to 3,000 residents. And that would make me, uh, not to be selfish right now, <laughs> but that would make me panic if I was the first one to find it and then yeah. everyone else found out about it and they weren't employed by me. <laughs> people were just rushing towards it. I would be absolutely panicked. Yeah. I wonder how like the, what the hierarchy of that was like and and what claim do you have over it if you if you, if you discovered the gold and the land and yeah, I wonder how that works because I feel like when you go to old gold mining towns so you always see like one big mill like gold mining mill mm-hmm. so who owned that was like that was just like the guy who had the most money or did multiple people work for that and they all mined the gold yeah or was it the richest person came in and was like try to sue me i will <laughs> good luck bury you in your court fees i'll bury so you I in claim. gold and it won't even bother me because i have so much more <laughs> Oh, God, my anxiety is spiking. (laughs) (laughs) Got to drink this wine. Um, So, okay, yeah, so it's like 3,000 residents, and most of them are men, keep in mind, because they're all, you know, minors. And then the women who were there were like the saloon girls, and Mm -hmm. there were a few wives and children, but mostly men. And so it's 3,000 residents. It's become this massive settlement, and at the time it hadn't really been developed as like an official town. So John White, who's the guy who founded this area – applied for township within the country, and he wrote the name Banak, which is B-A-N-N-O-C-K, after the local Native American tribe. But unfortunately, there was a clerical error, and when John White received the accepted documents back, they had written the name of the town down with an A instead of an O, so Banak instead of Banak. So it's just been Banak ever since. As with many gold mining towns in the wild, wild west, there was a large presence of outlaws 
The roads in and out of towns were home to dozens of what they called road agents, which I had never heard before. But I guess it's like of the outlaws groups, they have road agents who like sit along the road and wait for people who are like trying to leave with their gold to attack your caravan. And they killed so many men along the routes daily. Oh my gosh. Like land pirates, essentially. Basically, yeah. Wait, that's a great way. Great term. I wonder if they were ever called that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, now you're getting a hang of it. <laughs> First beer, t- uh, land pirates. <laughs> it's going to be a double IPA. <laughs> Love it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, do you want to start a brewery? I'm kind of into this. I've been I'm thinking of names for all of the beers since we started. <laughs> I'm very into it. We also did talk about starting a brewery many, many moons ago. And we've also talked about writing children's books. So... We have some things to do. We have many endeavors. Yeah. We'll just take our Scooby-Doo bus around <laughs> and just start all these businesses that we never keep up with. We are entrepreneur women. Look at us. With no follow through. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we've been doing this for three and a half years. That's I think that's, that's, true, that's true. I'm discrediting us. But we're great. We're fine. We're great. Okay. So January of 1863, this man named Henry Plummer arrives to the town and again, History here is a little off, but I'm just going to give him this. Everyone loves him. And he's almost immediately elected as sheriff. And he was just like, I'm going to bring peace to the settlement and stop the violence from the outlaws. Because this big threat was the outlaws that called themselves the innocents. And there was a group of like 100 bandits who were murdering and stealing gold from all these miners and just making life in Banach dangerous. So enter Henry Palmer. And he's got a great plan. And he's just like... Seems like a good old chap, wears a great cowboy hat and like, you know, loops his thumbs through his belt loops. And he's just like, howdy, y'all. That's just, you know, that's my history. (laughs) By May of 1863, more gold mining towns start popping up in the area. And Sheriff Plummer is appointed to U.S. Deputy Marshal for the region. And in that year, in 1863 alone, there were over 100 men murdered in his first year as a marshal. So... He claimed to want to bring peace, but it seems it was harder than he and he initially That's thought it was going to be. Very high percentage. Yes. If we think about if they're like, uh, let's say that, that with all of their expansion, they're mm-hmm. under five thousand people, and a hundred people are getting murdered. I can't do math, but I know that that's a lot. That is a lot. I do think at this time, at this point, it was almost at like ten thousand settlers. It was a huge area at that time because it was founded in eighteen sixty two. And then I think in a matter of two to three years, the population went increased to 10,000 people. 10,000. Okay. So again, I can't do math. But if I attempted to, is that like 1%? Yeah, right? Or is, or is that 0.1? I don't know. But one in a hundred, if it is 1%, one in a 100 people will be murdered. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Because it's the wild, wild west. That's wild. Wild wild thing so then this it's just getting chaotic right 100 people are dying a year it's madness so it's the innocents who are these bandits and then the townspeople they're like we are sick of this the sheriff's not doing enough we are going to form our own vigilante crew and they are like old school neighborhood watch basically uh but they're very dangerous they call themselves the montana vigilantes and they start wearing masks in the middle of the night and they like will break into people's homes and visit the suspected outlaws in the dark of night and like beat them up or like drag them to the gallows. And it was, I mean, there was just no order or anything 
to this society. And the vigilantes start posting photos on the streets with skull and crossbones kind of as like a a threat of like, we're going to kill you. Or they would write these numbers, which they call the mystic numbers on the posters. And the numbers are 3777, which is apparently the measurements for a grave, three feet wide, seven feet long, 77 inches deep. So it was basically like, if we find you, you're ending up in your grave. And to this day, this is a really fun fact that I was like shook by. To this day, Montana State Highway Patrolmen have an emblem on their shoulder patch, and it says 3777. Isn't that crazy? Creepy. But that that also reminds me of Salem, how they all have the 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 witches on the brooms on on their patches. Yeah. You know what also I'm learning from this is that there's a standard for a grave or that there was. There definitely is. Now, I think if some like cemeteries would obviously do like a regular plot and there's a general casket size. Uh-huh. But I, I don't know why. But back in the day, I thought like maybe that they dug holes as people died. It wasn't like pre-planned. Right. And so if you were, you know, five foot three, they wouldn't be put. They wouldn't bother with the extra foot and a half. Right, in length. That's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was also when I was reading this, there was it wasn't. 100% that's what it stood for. It's just that was what they assume it stood for. Mm. And there's no definitive answer. But I like to think that's what it is. So wait, what is it again? Five, five, three, seven, seven, three, three, seven, seventy seven. You know, maybe not the safest pin number, but not a bad one. And if anyone ever <laughs> figured out and they were like, why would you choose such an easy pin? And you're like, it's the measurements for grave. And then people would be like, fuck, all right, I'm not going to use this. <laughs> And figure it out, but I'm sure as hell not going to steal your money. I just want to know in what scenario they're finding out your pin and asking you why you chose those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, a better a better example instead of your bank, your banking card might be on your phone, password to your phone, right? Right. And then someone else is like, huh. <laughs> also, three and seven are some of the best numbers. Two and four also great. Nine don't really love her. <laughs> Eight. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh. Yeah. I have feelings about numbers. And I know that this is a part of OCD. I can tell. I'm learning this about you. This is a new fun fact about Corinne. Do you have a TM on not liking nine? I don't hate nine. (laughs) I just don't love her. And she's female. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah. I don't know. I read one time that it's a part of what I learned in college when I was uh, taking a psych class. that it's a part of OCD, which is something that I was diagnosed with. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have these... Assign emotion and feeling towards inanimate things. Like (laughs) numbers? Yeah. 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 Okay. So these vigilantes are apprehending outlaws left and right. And they finally apprehend this one guy who went by the name Red. And they bring him to the gallows to be hanged. And as he's about to be hanged, he screams and points to the town sheriff, Henry Plummer. Remember the guy who was like, I'm going to save this place and bring peace? And he goes... Henry Plummer is the leader of the bandits, the innocents. So this whole time, Henry Plummer's pretending he's going to help bring the peace, but actually he's the leader of the outlaws. Wow. And again, this is one of those things that's not 100% verified and it's hard to verify, but this is just what happened in history. So he was accused of being the leader and apparently as, you know, when, when everyone hears this, 
they're learning and, and thinking that Plummer was using his insights as a sheriff to plot all these crimes that were happening. So he is this not the plot line of every episode of Scooby Doo? <laughs> Basically, they unmask the ghost and monster, and they're like, "It was the sheriff. The it was the groundskeeper. Time. Yeah, it was the guy who let us in." Exactly, because like he, I mean, he was in a powerful position, so he knew when people were going to be moving their gold, and he knew the mm-hmm. ins and outs of the town better than anyone, so he could set up these like stings and these crimes without kind of any suspect and he was just conning the entire town the whole time and so people you know some people loved him the residents and so they were divided on whether or not he was actually part of the murderous gang but one night after heavy drinking in a local saloon the vigilantes decided that he was guilty they adorned their masks as they did in the middle of the night and dragged him out of his bedroom and on january 10th 1864 there were like 70 men who gathered Plummer and then his two main deputies, Buck Stinson, which I just love that name, and Ned Ray. And the three were marched to the gallows and they hanged all three of them. And so, yeah, so they thought they had put the leader of the group to his death. But the robberies did not stop there. In fact, they actually like became more and more prominent. And there were more robberies. Uh, more people were being killed. And so now, because of this, many historians think that the story of the plumber and his gang was fabricated to cover up the real lawlessness in the Montana Territory, and that, like, these vigilantes who were trying to, like, create peace were actually just as bad as the outlaws, and it was just madness. I mean, there's just no law and order. It was chaos. Then, in 1864, John White, remember him, the the guy who discovered the town, is murdered. And no one knows how or who, by who, he just is murdered, he's found dead. And yes. his only footnote, this is very sad, this is what an article I read said, so I'm quoting it, but it's, his only footnote in history is the extent to which Montana went to track down his killer, and sadly, it was unsuccessful. So no one knows what oh. happened to him, and poor John White, like, you know, he has this amazing discovery, discovery in history, and and no one really knows all about it impact exactly he brought a whole flux of people and for the best gold that california had to offer at the time it's also a little unfortunate that he has such a general name but that's of the time i mean not everyone could be (laughs) what's his name buck stinson that's the name that i like right yeah. yeah john white i do wonder you know i think california is one of those states where if you win the lottery you have to declare it as an individual you can't claim Mm -hmm. it as like an Mm -hmm. llc or a trust or anything like that and so oh. you're public facing. And I'm curious if you could just, when you find out that you won the lottery, if you could, what the timing is to legally change your name, if you could choose to like change your name to like John White, something very general, then <laughs> claim the ticket as John White and then change your name back or right. just never tell anyone right. that you legally I, changed I, your name. I will name. say as someone who just got married I don't know. and Loopholes. is legally changing my last name, it is a pain in the butt of a process. Is it? How long does it take? I don't know because I'm very <laughs> early on in the process. <laughs> Okay, well, the fact that it doesn't just take like two weeks to fill out paperwork is crazy. No, it's not that easy. Uh, okay, so like I said, so John White's dead, and then now it's like the fall of 1864, and there are nearly 10,000 people crowded along the hillsides living in these you know, tents, shacks, caves, etc. And it became known, this area became known as the 14-mile city because there were so many people and so many settlements and tents and setups, like all just for Banach. And... Unfortunately, by 1864, this is two years after the town is founded, 
finding gold is getting harder and harder. And so death and chaos between the vigilantes, miners, and outlaws just increased, and men were being hanged daily. And by 1867, the law-abiding citizens were turning against the vigilantes. So it was like this, like, vigilantes versus outlaws, and then the law-abiding citizens versus the vigilantes, and it was just like madness. And all this inner turmoil and the fact that the gold was becoming depleted and townspeople were just, you know, at a loss and Banach wasn't giving them what they initially found or what they initially came there for, people start fleeing to other towns in search Mm -hmm. of more prosperous success in finding gold. And so by 1870, the population of Banach shrunk back to just a few hundred. So in a matter of almost eight, basically eight years, from 1862 to 1864, 65, it grows to 10,000. And then by 1870, it is back to maybe 100 settlers. 10,000 to 100. That's dramatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Methodist church built in 1890 around that time. And it was just like, I think it was trying, they were trying to revive the town and find new ways to bring people in. So, you know, building this church and then The courthouse was abandoned because it was no longer the capital of Montana. And so someone came in and tried to turn the courthouse into a hotel and and Mm -hmm. draw people in that way. But, you know, none of these attempts really worked. And by the 1930s, all the businesses and all the people, the social life of Banach left. And then the school shut down because there weren't enough kids. And there were like no teachers because the teachers were leaving. And so without the school or the businesses or the people, Banach became a ghost town. Which always, like, I don't know, whenever I hear about Ghost Town, I'm like, who was that last old folk mm-hmm. who left last, you know? And did How long he- did they stay? Was it, like, 20 years of, ah, I'm not going to leave? Yeah. And, then, and then maybe they never leave. Maybe they die there. And their true. kids are the ones that are like, okay, well, what are we going to do with this house that you left us in a ghost town? Yeah. Yeah. Banach had served its purpose and settlers moved on. They say that because like most mining towns, like this happened a lot where, you know, a mining town would become so popular, all the resources would be depleted and then it would be left abandoned. But this town lasted longer than most. And it wasn't until like the 1950s that it was completely abandoned. And it would have fallen into disrepair had it not been for the state of Montana, who decided to turn the town into a state park and have done an incredible job of preserving it. And they don't really... Wow. They don't really... um what's it called repair or do any like remodeling or anything. They truly just Mm -hmm. preserve the buildings. And today there are over 60 structures still standing and (gasps) most of them can still be explored. But seeing the wild West isn't the only thing that draws people to go to Banach. The ghosts are also a draw to the town because I literally forgot that this is the ghost (laughs) podcast because this history is so fascinating. I was fully into it. I'm so glad. Yeah, it is really fascinating. It's such a it's a weird part of American history that just feels so separated from a lot of the other history we learned just because it's like it it's chaos. It's and I feel like granted, I don't have the best memory of what I learned when I was 12 years old in school. But that was around the time that we learned of this. But I felt like we really learned a lot more about, like, I don't know, just the rush out there Mm -hmm. and kind of the poverty and struggle. We didn't learn about all of the crime and the violence and the lawlessness. That came – that information came in television and movies. And then we weren't sure, you know, what's factual and what's not. And so I feel like when we do ghost towns and when when we research these places, I'm always so, like – whoa captivated because i've never heard these things before yeah you're right because i feel like in school i have a memory of learning about the california gold rush and then learning about the railroads being built and like yes those were like the two big 
things, but you didn't really dig deeper into them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Banach has lots of ghosts because with all the death and turmoil that took place, there are so many ghosts. They and they there's, you know, the men who were trying to like drive in and out of town and were robbed or killed. And there are women who have been who died there, just people who died of old age. And there's just lots and lots of ghosts. And they're all still haunting the town. And it's so riddled with paranormal activity that it was featured on our favorite show. Not really, but Ghost Adventurers. <laughs> and today, many say that the ghost of Henry Plummer haunts the settlement because he's trying to avenge his name if he was innocent. And there's a general store called the Old Christmas General Store. And that is the site of unexplained occurrences. Henry Plummer is believed to have used the back offices when he was in office. And so... It was a popular social spot, and there's a photograph of a foggy entity that's been captured in the general store, and people believe it's Henry Plummer. But I tried to find it online, and it, like, when you click on it, it says, like, it goes to an expired link. So I don't know where to find it. So if anyone can find it, please send it to us. There are also... Correction, send it to Sabrina. Yeah. Send it to Sabrina. But this is not a scary one. You've seen worse. Okay, yeah, that's true, that's true. You just almost sent me a really terrifying one the other night that we were reminded of. From Well, yeah, because it came up my time hop and I was like shook by it and I wanted to <laughs> share it with someone else because I didn't want to be alone in the feeling, but I didn't send it to you because I'm a good friend. I just responded no. <laughs> when you said I almost sent it to you, I was like, no, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> it was like 10 p.m. So that's fair. Yeah. There are numerous ghost stories of activity at the Hotel Mead, which used to be the courthouse. And it was originally built in 1875 and then became empty in 1881 and then sat vacant for nine years until it was remodeled into this hotel called Hotel Mead. And it also at a time had acted as a hospital because like the hospital in the town had too like was over capacity. So there's just mm-hmm. a lot of things that have happened in this building and people feel cold spots. There's an apparition of a teenage girl. There are sounds of children crying and this young girl that is seen in this building is said to be a girl named Dorothy Dunn who drowned in a dredge pond along the creek in 1916 at just 16 years old. 16? Yeah. And she was with like her best friend and they were out and she drowned. And almost a few days later was when she had her fir- the first ghost appearance of Dorothy wow. Dunn was recorded. So this is 1916 and she appeared to her best friend who was with her at the time of her death. And since then, Dorothy has appeared in the hotel and she's wearing a long blue dress and she's seen on the second story of the old hotel. And most of the time, the people who see her are young children. And there's a story of a seven-year-old who saw Dorothy and said that her mouth was moving, but there was no sound coming out. And this kid like ran to his mom was like, there's someone who like needs help because he could just tell that she wanted to say something, but nothing was coming out. Ooh, that's so scary. That reminds me of Haunting of the Hill House where the twin, not to ruin things, (laughs) but it's been out for a couple of years, so I'm sorry. But the the twin girl, when she first dies and appears to her brother, how she's, her mouth is open and she's trying to speak. And you're, as a viewer, know that she's dead, but her brother doesn't. And it's so creepy. Sad too. Dorothy has also been sighted standing in an upstairs window by people who are on the street. And there's reports of ghostly women dressed in their best dresses and like, you know, nicest outfits walking through the towns. There's a house called the Bassett House, which has also earned a reputation for paranormal activity. 
and it has been nicknamed the crying baby house because as I'm sure you guessed, there are sounds of crying babies. And that's kind of like the most popular haunting in that house. And people believe it's the infants of spirits of children who lost their lives to illness there. And then I found just like a bunch of experiences from people who have visited. So this woman, Debbie from Canada, was visiting with her husband and her daughter back in 2009. And they were sitting on the steps of Hotel Mead waiting for her husband when she like turned to look at the building that they were sitting in front of and was like, oh, I wonder if we can go if we're allowed inside of it. And she says this out loud. And just as she finishes her sentence, the door to the building swings open, wide (gasps) open, and there's no one there. And it's Ah! like as if the ghosts were like, come on in. Come on in. Grab a drink. Mm -hmm. Hang out with us. And so like that experience totally felt like super benign and nice and friendly. But there's another visitor who was in Hotel Mead and felt a cold spot that gave her very, very unpleasant feelings. And she Mm. had a ghost meter with her that started going crazy. And so her and her husband like try to leave that spot thinking that if they move on from that room or wherever they were, that it wouldn't follow them. But this thing followed Mm -hmm. them for two floors and it didn't leave them until they left the building entirely. Wow. Darla, who visited in 2020, wrote that she, her daughter and her daughter's friend visited and they were like looking at the schoolhouse and taking pictures of the schoolhouse and they look, looked back at the picture and all of a sudden they noticed that at the top floor of the schoolhouse in the window was a woman wearing a long black skirt and like a light colored coat, but like very older times clothing. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, well, maybe there's someone just in there. But the building was close to the public. So they're like looking in the window and no one's there. They take another picture and in that window, which they're looking at and there's no one there, she shows up again in the camera, in the photo. <gasps> Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. I'm just picturing – I'm picturing Dolores from Westworld this whole time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Ooh. And then Josh97056 left a review on TripAdvisor, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's titled Haunted Campground. He wrote, we really enjoy Binnock. It feels like you just stepped back in time 100 years. There's over 50 preserved buildings in the original condition – most of them open to explore, and we got some really creepy vibes in some of the buildings, and the jails are very scary. There are two campgrounds to choose from. One is the road agent campground, and the other is the vigilante campground. Upon pulling in, we noticed everyone was camping at the vigilante camp, so we were excited to have the whole road agent, which is the bad guy's campground, to ourselves. However, we think we now know why no one was camping there. It is haunted. Yes. We all felt an evil presence at our campground. We also saw a strange guy come out of the bushes in the night and head up the road into town, which was scary. And Yeah, from the bushes. We basically slept with an axe in our hand all night, and no one really slept. Plus, the mosquitoes were really bad and swarming at times. It was cool, but a scary place. If you're going to camp, stay in the vigilante campground, unless you want to be scared to death. So that is Banach, the ghost town in Montana. And the state park is open year-round with winter operating hours, um, and you can camp. They have two campsites, as Joshy, whatever from his trip advisor, said. Uh, and every October, they host ghost tours, and they're like live reenactments. So, like people dress up as like the infamous characters from, or you know, people from the history of Banat, mm-hmm. and tell you the ghost stories as they're like acting like the characters. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And that's Banak. Wow. Wow. A place that we, or at least I'd never heard of before. Me neither. And yet it's so fascinating. What a rich history. 
I feel like this is the town that everyone should learn about. This is what will really get people into <laughs> the history of the gold rush out to the West. Yeah, I would go. We can add that to our road trip list. I'm down. I'm down. You know, there's something about really historic gold rush, wild west towns that I think so much happened there. And there's such a rich history that I don't feel as weird about visiting mm-hmm. such like an abandoned and spooky place because I feel like there's a whole plethora of different characters that right. reside there in their afterlife. And the energy is, is kind of a, a melting pot of different people's experiences. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily this one like, oh, it's you're going to have something really scary and spooky right. and everyone had a horrible experience there. Right. Because it became a ghost town naturally. And the, mm-hmm. the only other comparison I can think of is like Chernobyl, which, you know, is tragic, but had to be abandoned. And the mm-hmm. amount of people who died from that yeah, is just tragic. But whereas this town was, you know, voluntarily people left. But it is a good, I don't know. I'm I'm torn because it also makes me think about how wasteful we are as people. And it's just like, let's deplete our earth of all of our resources and then just leave it behind. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, the fact that when you look up ghost towns, there are so many. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just abandoned places that are never that are either taken over by nature or just fully like just taking up space. Yeah. And those people moved on and then created even more. That's why humans are parasites. We are. Although I am reading a book about Mars. It's called Red Rising and it's all it's like Hunger Games meets Game of Thrones and it takes place mm. in space and it's like on Mars. And as violent as it is, I'm like loving it because I'm like, yeah, I would love to live on Mars with my alien friends. Did you watch the the not not that it landed on? I did. I did. Did you you watched it? I, watched I did too. The landing. The new robot. Mm-hmm. New robot. It is interesting. And also, you know, I am reading Sapiens right oh, now. You are. Have you read it? No. It's been on my list for years and I'm finally getting to it. I've heard it's great. It is really good because it puts a lot into perspective in terms of us as humans and the different species of what is now homo or ended up being homo sapiens Mm -hmm. or the other species that were relatives of ours that existed similar to us in the past before homo sapiens became like the main predominant group that survived. Right. But one of the things that they talk about in the book is just the history of these people. So there's many different groups. There was a group that was in, you know, the Middle East and Asia and then We always hear about, obviously, the history of Homo erectus and of Neanderthals, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But essentially, what the book is saying is that us as humans and then our ancestors that predated us before we evolved into what we are now have always been destroyers of land, resources, and animals. Mm. Everywhere we've gone, we have just, just... Absolutely taken over the place. It's so sad. All the animals die. All the plants die. Everything's struggling. And then we're like, oh man, this place sucks. Why is it like this? And we move on to the next place we and destroy are it. Horrible. It's insane. I mean, and it's not new. It happened a long, yeah. long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So everyone, I mean, it, it's right for everyone to be like, well, let's pay closer attention to what we're doing and, mm-hmm. and take some accountability for our actions and try to reverse some of the damage that we're doing. Yeah. But it's it's been happening for so long. Not that it, it's right, but it's been happening for so long. And I was like, holy shit, I thought humans were just bad, you know, as of the past, I don't know, thousand years. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's always More been like that, that yeah. kind of the case. The lack of understanding of how, how everything affects everything else, I guess, is essentially what they're saying. Wow. That sounds like a very heavy, heavy book. <laughs> You're like, damn, ancestors from... You know, 10,000 years ago. 
Get it together. Get it together. I do want to read that, though. And then you're like, wait a second. We haven't really gotten it together now. So, but yeah, it's a good read. Yeah. Maybe read the book that you're reading now. And, and then, then read that. Sapiens right after. And you're going to be like, whoa. The book I'm reading, though, is it's a five bo- five or six book series. So I'm on book two. Jeez. So it's fiction? Yes, because I don't think anyone lives on Mars yet, Karen. I, was, I wasn't sure if it was like... <laughs> speculating because in sapiens oh, at least there's yeah. a lot that they speculate yeah. about they're like okay there's evidence towards this and that but nothing's been proven right right right. no it is fiction full fiction space movies scare the heck out of me and you know what else I, when i was showering today i had this memory mm-hmm. not a memory that belonged to me it's not like i did anything but mm-hmm. this this thing that i hadn't thought about in so so long suddenly came to me and i was like oh my god i didn't remember that this was such a fear of mine monster trucks Monster trucks are so scary. Yes, they are, because they could, like, run you over and eat you. They can crush anything and everything. Yeah. They're so, so scary. I don't like monster trucks. Okie dokie. All right. So, this is... Normally, when we do research, at least me personally, I have around, like, five pages of notes. to try to keep it around that. Mm-hmm. I'm currently at eight pages. I easily could have written another eight. I know. Mine was at seven. Yes. So, this is... It's tough to stop writing about this sort of topic. Yes. But our Patreon donor, Maggie, suggested looking into Glastonbury, Vermont. And I was like, great, a home state haunt. I'm in. And then upon my first Google search, I realized that Glastonbury is one of the towns that's included in the Bennington Triangle, which I've referenced (gasps) before. And I can't believe I still haven't done it yet. But you've heard of the Bermuda Triangle because we referenced it. You've Mm -hmm. listened to episodes or if you have listened to episodes in the past, you've heard us cover Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah. And now you're going to hear about the Bennington Triangle. Oh my gosh. Alrighty. So back in the 1700s and 1800s, Glastonbury, Vermont and surrounding towns were getting really into cutting down trees. And this is actually part of New England history and Vermont history that I recently learned because this past summer I drove through Queechy Gorge in Vermont and they had this QR code and I was like, want to know more about the gorge? Whoa. I was like... <laughs> I guess. Yes, I do. And so I, I did it. And it tells you all about the history and about, you know, like, back in the day, Vermont landscape was actually part of the tropical ocean. And it's mm-hmm. all this stuff. But learned a lot about uh, what was happening in terms of settlers moving to America and, and not only colonizing people and claiming land, mm-hmm. but they were absolutely destroying resources. Surprise, right. surprise. And in Vermont, and I'm sure a few other New England states, there was there were these huge mature chestnut trees all over that had provided food for animals and also the Abenaki and other native people of the area. But then in the 18th and 19th century, there were business needs for wood and paper and personal needs for cooking and warming homes. And so people were like, hell yeah, let's cut down trees. Let's get into the timber business and make a pretty penny. And then railroads began to branch off in the mid 1800s. So these rural areas such as Vermont they became more accessible. Mm -hmm. And so it brought in more of this logging business. So in Vermont, it's a Green Mountain state. A lot of New England were Green Mountain, White Mountain. Everyone's like, oh, mountains. But it's not like the mountains out in like California or Switzerland. Like These mountains aren't super, super high. So they're relatively accessible. And so everybody's like, whoa, so many trees. Let's cut this bitch down. And by the late 1800s, 80% of Vermont's trees had been cut down. 80%. 80%. Whoa. So the Green Mountain State was left to essentially grass and shrubs. Below 2,000 feet of elevation, there were no trees at all. They had just cut it down. 80%. And then the trees that were on the highest peaks of the mountains only remained 
Not because everyone's like, well, let's leave a few. If they had the option, they wouldn't leave any. They only remained because these trees were too large for saws and axes, and the terrain was too tough for vehicles or extra people to to have access, essentially, to the very tippy top of the mountain. Everything else just wiped out. And they had no plans for replanting, no plans for, okay, well, we're going to use this and then, you know, replace with new seeds. Nothing. They were just like, la, 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 take everything, not care about any of the animals, the people, nothing. Well, here we are. This is, I mean, this is your book, Sapiens. This is, (laughs) this is Sapiens. I know. My dad actually told me a few years ago, he was like, you know, all the trees in Vermont are new. Like they're basically, they're all under 200 years old. That's not true, dad. And then, of course, we're doing this research, and, and yes, it's it is. true. <laughs> it's true. So now that all of the trees are cut down and the state is bare, everyone's like, "Great! It's even more perfect for trains and to bring in tourism. Nothing's in the way. Come enjoy the wide open spaces." Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, after all of this logging business had happened, they brought in a casino, a dance hall, an inn, outdoorsy activities like a hatchery. They were just trying to bring in money because the logging business had essentially died or was close to its death. Right. And then in 1898, a major flood happened and destroyed all of the railroad lines and bridges and just, boom, everything was gone. How horrible for business, but also perhaps how great for the land to sort of reclaim itself. Because after that devastating flood, the land was never really rebuilt. They had attempted to rebuild, but a lot of things got in the way. There were some health outbreaks and people were not recovering and just many, many things got in the way and prevented people from ever rebuilding despite a few attempts. I doing do so. like to think that Mother Earth was just like, no, 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 no. This GTFO. needs to stop. Yeah. You did a lot in a short amount of time and we're done with you. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. So the land was never rebuilt. The, the logging was never rebuilt. These bridges, transportation, train tracks, everything was essentially destroyed. Wow. And so people that were in Glastonbury primarily for logging turned a bit of tourism they were like okay well we previously made a good living for ourselves on timber Mm -hmm. but now we're not so let's take our business elsewhere let's move on what's left for us here so they left glastonbury and its diminished resources that they destroyed behind and what was once a small and thriving community of glastonbury vermont with about 250 people quickly became a ghost town Mm. stores closed the one local school closed the mill was left vacant homes were abandoned it was a ghost town. Wow. But this doesn't seem too bad, right? Because we're like, okay, sure. They came in, they destroyed the landscapes, they drove animals out, they depleted the resources for the native tribes, and they weren't really concerned. They're just moving on to the next best thing. So whatever, it's fine. The residents of Glastonbury may have moved on, but the land did not forget. Ooh. The native people refuse to hunt on the mountain because they feel like there's a dark presence now residing over it. They would only go up to the mountain to bury their dead, and otherwise they would not set foot on Glastonbury Mountain and the surrounding area as they believed that this was cursed land because this is where the four winds met in an eternal struggle. Four winds. In this area, it was very windy. It was erratic weather. If you go up to the higher peaks or if you've ever hiked in the area— because of the wind, there's these strange growing patterns, like the the nature, the trees and shrubs will kind of like grow at weird angles, grow outward from the mountaintop because of the wind. Mm. And the woods are also very, very dense. So, you know, what was once depleted grew up again, and now it is surrounded by woods, but it's almost like a vacuum seal 
in the woods or or so people have described. Wow. I have not been there. It reminds me of what's that one that you did that like forest high about you forest. How, how about you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It kind of is like that where it's just like it feels so separate from what you were just in. Yeah. Like stepping into another world. And the way that the trees grow differently and yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the native people were pretty right to avoid this place because for the next hundred years after being left as a ghost town, Glastonbury Mountain and its neighboring towns, which include Bennington, Woodford, Shaftesbury, and Somerset, they would become known as the Bennington Triangle. Mm. Strange things started to happen on this mountain. Not only was there a feeling of darkness when on the mountain, but people started to go missing. (gasps) It started in 1945 when 74-year-old Mitty Rivers went missing. It was November 12th, and Mitty was out hunting, and he was an experienced hunter. He was a hunter. He was a fisher. He'd known the mountain and the woods really, really well. Mm-hmm. He was known for kind of like wandering off, and he would always return. He was just kind of, you know, like he just wanted to explore. And doing he thing. was comfortable doing so because he was such an outdoorsman. He was a survivalist. He knew what to do, and he knew how to navigate. And so on this day, Mitty was guiding three other hunters alongside of his son up the mountain to hunt. They spent the day hunting, and then before night fell, the group made their way back down the mountain in the Long Trail Road area, mm-hmm. uh, with Mitty in the lead and the four other people, his son and the three other people, following behind him. And at one point, he gets a bit ahead of the group, and the other people, they start to lose track of him. He was wearing a visible red hat. They couldn't see the hat anymore. So they figured, okay, he just, you know, he wandered ahead a little bit quicker than the clip that we're going. He's going to be waiting up ahead for us. Oh, no. So they continue on. But he's not there, and he's not where they were supposed to meet, and they wait for him, and he's still not back. So they become concerned, and they start to search for him that evening, but they could not find him. And it gets dark, and the group is like, okay, we know we need to pause. We're not going to do anything in the darkness like this. We're not too, too concerned about Mitty. He's very experienced. He knows how to find shelter. He knows how to forage. He's going to be okay spending the night in the woods. He's going to just, you know, wander out in the morning with quite the tale to tell. So they pause on the searching and the next day, Mindy does not return and he never did. And extent, oh, I just got chills because it's just so freaking freaky. And this all reminds me so much of Missing 411. I haven't read the books, but if you have Amazon and can afford the rental Missing 411 documentary, they have hunters and then just like the missing people. And everything I'm about to say in this uh, story is so remnant of what is said Mm. in that documentary. So freaky. So Mitty never returns. An extensive search was conducted. It involved 300 locals, or they they asked for 300 locals and whoever could come came. The U.S. Army soldiers from Fort Devens in Massachusetts came up north to help. Uh, They searched for eight straight days, but no one found Mitty. The only evidence was a single rifle cartridge that was sitting in a nearby stream. So it's thought that Mitty, you know, always the kind of adventurer and wanderer, had been just off the trail, had popped over the stream, Mm. and in doing so, the cartridge dropped out of his pocket. Mm. Never seen Mitty again. Then just one year later, 18-year-old Paula Weldon, who was a sophomore at Bennington College, she decides she wants to go on a hike on the long trail. It's December 1st, 1946. Paula had just finished her shift at Bennington College Dining Hall, and she went back to her dorm. She saw her roommate for a moment she changes into proper clothes for the weather outside. It was pretty cold. It was December, yeah. but not too cold to not be outside and enjoy some outdoor activities and some fresh air. But she didn't bring anything extra with her. There was no like backpack. There was no 
you know, extra waters, survival gear, anything like that, because she had only planned to hike for about a few hours. She wanted to see what the, what was up at the long trail. It was Thanksgiving break. There weren't a ton of people on campus anymore. She hadn't gone home. Um, So she was like, yeah, the, the long trail's nearby. Like, let me, let me check it out. Yeah. So she goes to the edge of campus, walks a little bit beyond the campus entrance, and she just kind of hangs out, thumbing it, trying to get picked up, hitchhiking her way to the long trail. She's first picked up by local contractor whose name is Lewis Knapp. He drives her two and a half miles from the entrance to the trail of where she's trying to go. He has to go home. So he's like, okay, I drove you all this way. I got to drop you. You got to figure it out for the rest of the two and a half miles. He drops her, goes home. It is known that she made it the rest of the way because there was a group of hikers that saw her coming up the trail as they were headed down. So she had actually stopped and asked the group a few questions about the hike because she hadn't been on it before. So she was asking them a little bit about like the surrounding area and the hike and the length and whatnot and where to go. They gave her info and then she continued on. The last known sighting of her was just past Faye Fuller Camp. And the long trail, essentially, if you don't know, which I'm assuming a lot of people don't unless they're hikers or from New England. But the long trail is essentially just one long trail. I mean, there's a a few like uh, other trails that weave in and out, but it's one long trail Mm -hmm. that essentially goes the whole length of Vermont from north to south. So you can hike essentially the state of Vermont. That's cool. It is cool. It's it's uh, 273 miles. It takes between two and four weeks to hike it straight. Whoa. And remember when I was like, oh, I kind of, I want to get into hiking for a while. I was like, maybe I should do the Appalachian Trail. Uh-huh. Even though there was, we said many, many scary things that yeah. happened on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> yeah. And now I kind of want to hike the long trail because it, it feels more doable four weeks. And then I'll probably never hike again because I know I'll hate it. But for some reason, part of me is like, let's do it. <laughs> So anyway, she, Paula was also like, hey, let's do it. Not the whole thing, but just, you know, a couple hours worth because right. I hear it's beautiful and a lot of people do it and there's plenty of people on the trail. So at some point, Paula would have needed to turn around on this trail or she would have gone off on one of the neighboring trails to kind of like loop her way back. Right. Whatever she did or whatever happened to her, we do not know because she never returned. And you still want to do this hike? <laughs> With someone else. Like with maybe a group of like 10 people. I have a dark thought. Yeah. What if the guy who gave her a ride killed her and the people who saw her, it was her ghost? Oh, gosh. That, I mean, I would normally be very into that, but there was another couple who did see her. So there were a few, oh. there were multiple like separate groups of witnesses. But it could be her ghost. It still could be her ghost. You're right. Because she wanted <laughs> to be on the long trail. So maybe her ghost continued on and went to the long trail. I'm joking. I, and me saying that made me think of the poor guy in the Cecil documentary morbid who they like accused of being a murderer and i'm not here to accuse people j'accuse yeah mr knapp i think he did drop her where he said he did okay i believe it (laughs) but but i mean but you're right to think that because a lot of stories do kind of end like that where there's some sort of motorist abduction Mm -hmm. involved yeah 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 i mean my favorite murder covered one of mary helen that woman who was picked up and essentially her arms were both chopped off and that has scarred me she survived right she yeah she's a survivor she's still alive wow. today and she went to her attacker like every single one of his parole meetings every single one of his hearings and trials and wow. kept him away so yeah she's a survivor but still that does happen to people and especially a, a college age girl walking alone yeah it's very i mean ted bundy too also you know mm-hmm. yes this was the 1940s though and you know hitchhiking didn't become so 
faux pas until what, like the 80s, 90s, when everyone started realizing that that's how people were getting murdered. So anyway, so Paula, she wanders off. People don't know what happened, but the temperature did drop later that day and she had never returned. Her roommate, who previously thought that, you know, she was just at campus studying because Paula never told her what she was doing. She comes back to the dorm and she's like, oh, she's still not home. Okay, well, maybe she's just, you know, exams are coming up in a few weeks. Maybe she's just studying. So she doesn't really think much about it. But the next morning when she wakes up and Paula's still not home, she contacts the campus. And immediately the campus is like, whew, we got to do a search. Paula is missing. Mm. So they believe that she had gone missing on site because, again, she hadn't told anyone on campus what she was doing. Oh, So at first, the search was entirely conducted around Bennington College, and it wasn't until a few days after her disappearance that Paula's picture circulated enough that the police were eventually led to or or learned of her trip to the Long Trail because one of the hikers from the group that she passed identified her. Oh, wow. And that is when the search shifted to the mountain, to Glastonbury Mountain. Wow. And they searched for weeks. They were looking for her bright red clothing that she had worn that day, similar to Mitty wearing a red hat, and he disappeared. Mm. It was a very easy color to spot amongst, you know, the white and brown landscape, the dead of winter in November and December. And the campus shuts down for several days. They allow the students and faculty to help participate in the search. So there were a ton of people. There were hundreds of volunteers. Her family was on site. The National Guard joined the search. Firefighters, everyone. And the last people to see her was not the group that she had first asked directions or or questions about the long trail to, but an elderly couple who were about 100 yards behind her. She had turned the corner. Paula had turned the corner up ahead on the trail. And then when the same couple turned the corner, they couldn't spot her anymore in the distance. So they just assumed she had gotten quite far ahead. She must have picked up her pace, gotten way far past them. So the search, they then went to the skies. There was an aerial search that went all around the Long Trail, Glastonbury Mountain, and the trails, the various trails that branched off in the area and all along Route 9. And there was a $5,000 reward that was posted. And the FBI even got involved trying to help with this search for Paula, this missing college student. Whoa. They found absolutely nothing. No clues at all. And so the mystery of Paula's disappearance mixed with Mitty's in the same area one year prior began to kind of cause this sort of buzz. And that they were both wearing red. I love red. They were both wearing red. Yeah, so red's going to be a bit of a theme here. Oh, wow. So then three years later, a veteran named James Tedford, he went missing. And the date of his disappearance was December 1st, exactly three years to the day after Paula's disappearance. Whoa. James's case is actually a little bit different than Mehdi and Paula. Because though he was in the area... He was not in the woods. He was not even outside. James was traveling. I already have chills because this is just so freaking freaks me out. James was traveling home from or to Bennington on a bus after visiting St. Albans. He was visiting some family or family friends up there. So he was making his way back down on a public transportation bus. Oh my gosh. Witnesses stated and the bus driver stated that James was most definitely on the bus <gasps> at the no. step before Bennington. So it stopped. And then it continued on. James was on the bus. And then it got to Bennington. When the bus stopped at Bennington, James was not there. No. His personal possessions (gasps) were still on the luggage rack. A bus schedule that he had been holding was sitting on the seat where he'd been minutes before. But sometime in between the stop before his and his stop, 
he vanished into thin air. How? How? That is what? How? Right? So weird. I a full body chills. Full body chills. That's mind boggling. Mind boggling. Yes, because everyone and it wasn't. It also too was not like he was just sitting on the bus minding his own business. And people were like, "Yeah, I think he was there." He had been talking to people. He'd been, you know, like social, striking up conversations with people. There were interactions. So people were like, he was absolutely there oh at this gosh. time. He wasn't just maybe, yeah, I think maybe he was a passenger there. No, it was it was for sure people were certain and there were multiple people. Whoa. So then just a year after James's disappearance, an eight-year-old named Paul Jepson, no. he and his mom go to the local dump. His mom and his dad were caretakers at this dump and his mom was going off to feed the local pigs in the area. I don't know if it was some sort of like farm or what the Mm -hmm. pigs were doing but essentially she was like let's go she hopped out of the truck left paul to play in the truck area she walked a little bit out of sight of him fed the pigs she was gone from him for maybe about an hour but this wasn't this wasn't an odd occurrence for them this was like a normal thing that they did and that's also not uncommon during that time i feel like no not at all not at all and it, it was you know wide open space they didn't think much of it paul was mostly playing around the truck area Mm -hmm. um and he was wearing a bright red jacket. Oh, no. And so when his mom returned, she couldn't find him. And she was like, this is odd. You know, he's in a color that she can normally spot and spot pretty quick. But she can't find him. So immediately she contacts authorities. Again, hundreds gather to search for Paul. And the New Hampshire police are brought in. A bloodhound named Little Queenie oh. is brought in to search. And two, uh, there are two different results from Little Queenie's uh her tracking essentially so i don't know which one is true exactly but one report states that little queenie lost paul's scent at a road suggesting or or making some people believe that maybe there was sort of a motorist kidnapping involved another story is that the bloodhound little queenie brought them to around the same area where paula weldon had disappeared four years earlier Mm. So there's a lot of speculation. They're not really sure what's up. It's also a very windy area. So, you know, if you're brought to an open road and not protected by trees and shrubs, there's an opportunity for scent to be carried away or moved around and to confuse a dog. So what happened, they don't know. And they never will know. And we still don't know. But on October 28th, 1950, 53-year-old Frida Langer and her cousin Herbert Elsner, they were with Frida's husband And they were camping, they were at a campsite near the Somerset Reservoir, and they decided, let's go on a hike. So they were going to go, they were outdoorsy people, they did this often, they camped, they hiked, this is what they enjoyed to do. But Frida's husband was like, I got to stay behind, I'm nursing a little knee sprain, I don't think hiking is a good idea, I'm going to take a breather right now. Mm -hmm. And so Frida and her cousin are like, okay, that's fine, like, are you cool staying here? And he was like, yes. So they go on without him, and they're... I don't know, half mile into their hike, I believe is what it said. And Frida slips. She trips into a stream. She's totally fine, but she's soaked. And so she asks her cousin to wait for her because she wants to run back to the campsite and change really quick and then run the half mile back and meet him and then hike again. So her cousin's like, yeah, that's fine. I'll just wait here. You know, it's going to be like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. So he waits and he waits. And he waits. And then far too much time has passed no. since when, since she left and when she should have been back. Buddy system so, always. Buddy system. Buddy system. But they were at a campsite and this was I a normal know, thing I and know. they were very outdoorsy. So they, she wasn't injured. So they didn't think much of it. 
He should, yes, he should have walked the half mile back with her, but he didn't. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's easy to say after the fact. Right. And oftentimes it's like, you know, there's a bit of a distance from a campsite to a trailhead. And once you get to the trailhead, you're like, okay, I'm just going to wait at the bottom for you. Like, sure. This is a normal place for someone to wait. Right. So he heads back to the campsite and sees Frida's husband and is like, hey, what happened? Frida didn't meet me. And her husband had never seen her. (gasps) She had never returned to the campsite. He was still there nursing his injured leg. So in within half a mile. Half mile. Oh, my gosh. So she was not seen. And over a two-week span, <sighs> helicopters, planes, a 300-volunteer group, everyone was searching. The Connecticut Coast Guard, Massachusetts National Guard, local pilots who volunteered, and the Vermont Aeronautics Commission, they all came in to search the area to look for Frida. They were meticulously going over the stream the hiking trail, the campsite, and they did not find her. Everyone had searched every little piece of land in this area and no one found her. Whoa. So is she the fifth disappearance? She's the fifth disappearance within five years. Whoa. Yes. But they did find her eventually. <gasps> On May 12th, the following year, so this is like seven months later, her body's found and it was near the Somerset Reservoir. It was in an area that had been walked over and searched Time and time and time again. It was not hidden. It was out in the open. It had been searched by police, by volunteers. Many, many people had walked over that one exact spot. She had not been there. Whoa. And so it's not known what happened to her, but she was placed after the fact in that spot. And her remains were in such a state of decomposition that they weren't able to determine the cause of death. And so there are no real clues. We just know that whatever happened to her, She died, and then someone put her back where they had been searching and searching and searching for two weeks straight. I was going to ask, and it's a bummer that she was at such – not bummer, such a stupid word. It's so devastating that she was at such a high rate of decomposition because my question was going to be like, you know, did she – was she taken somewhere else and then, you know, kept there for a certain amount of time and then murdered Mm -hmm. and then brought back there? Or was she buried – in that spot. And then, you know, over the years or over the months, the, I don't know, ground gave way. Yeah. Especially when ground gets really wet, like here in Boston in one of the cemeteries. (laughs) Right. The ground gets really, really wet and graves move, the earth shifts and things get brought to the surface. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's possible, you know, maybe she got really disoriented and traveled 30, 40 miles away somehow and then found her way back and died. Who knows? But it just seems way too far-fetched. And the decomposition, like, you don't decompose that way in one night. So, like, if her body was found, it's seven months after she disappeared. So that makes me think, granted, I am no medical examiner, and I'm pulling this out of my (laughs) – but I imagine that maybe water would decompose a body quicker than if it was just, like, left on Earth, you know? Yeah. And the other thing, too – and, again, I also (laughs) am not an expert in this at all, but she did go – missing in a winter month it is really cold yes there snow is wet ice is wet wouldn't that preserve the body though like cold but you would think yeah because ice typically does and really cold weather does preserve and so she was found in early spring so you would think that the decomposition wouldn't be as intense as it was because there were such cold temperatures where she was you would think that there would be at least some sort of tell and it wasn't like she was eaten by a local animal, yeah. but 
Whoa. Yes, we don't know. But what we do know is that there were five unexplained disappearances within five years in the Glastonbury area. Frida's the only one whose remains were found, and it's not like her remains provided any answers at all. So all of these people seemingly vanished without a trace. They disappeared from the same area. All disappearances happened within the last three months of the year. They all happened between 3 and 4 p.m. Whoa, middle of the day. And so all of these, yes, middle of the day. It was before the sunset, even in the dead of winter, in the darkest time of year, it gets dark by like 4, 4 4.15 up here. So 3 and 4, there's still a bit of light. There's still witnesses. There's still people. You're not just getting lost in the dark, dark woods. Or, I don't know, I don't even, I don't even have an explanation for what could have happened on the bus. So, anyway, all we know is that there's all of these mysterious disappearances. And so all of these theories start to be birthed about the Bennington area, the Glastonbury area, and the Bennington Triangle becomes a thing. So many people, they're actually spotting UFOs in this area. So some people are like, okay, there's been a lot of UFO spottings in Vermont in general, in the surrounding area. So what if there's some sort of alien interference People are just getting, you know, plucked out of the sky. This is why suddenly when you turn a corner, there's no one there. When these people wearing bright red and and normal colors and huge survivalists who know the paths in the woods, like the back of their hand, this is why they're just being taken or or disappearing into thin air. And this might be a a good reason for Sheila's remains essentially being dumped later. Like maybe Mm -hmm. she was the Mm -hmm. only one that was taken and then abducted and then dumped back. So a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, it could be aliens, UFOs, etc. And this might not be too, too far-fetched because the area does have a lot of UFO sightings. And the most notable sighting was actually back in 1984 when a man named Don Pratt saw what he described as a flying silo slowly making its way over the Bennington area. Oh my gosh. So there's been a lot of action. UFOlogist John A. Keel actually proposed something a little bit different. So he wasn't thinking necessarily aliens, but... He's actually thinking an interdimensional doorway or vortex. <gasps> Whoa. Because, oh my gosh. Is that what you were? That's what you were saying. We had to find a vortex. We have to find a vortex. We don't even have to time travel. No, we can literally just wander and disappear in Bennington area, Glastonbury Mountain. And never find our way back. That's the only problem. Well, yeah. Getting back. How do you get back? Yeah. We don't know. But down in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, Bridge, the Bridgewater Triangle, which we've covered on a previous episode, they apparently have one. Same for Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And so it would make sense that Glastonbury Mountain and the Bennington Triangle area also would have this sort of vortex, this sort of interdimensional doorway, this paranormal phenomena. Mm -hmm. So this would actually make a little bit of sense because there's a legend in the area that native tribes have about this enchanted stone that is somewhere in the surrounding mountains. And the stone looks like a normal stone. It's just a rock. But when you step on it, it changes. It opens up and it will swallow a person whole. This is the vortex and there's no way of knowing where it is because it moves all the time. Well, that's dangerous. Very dangerous. And so this could be the portal that Kiel speaks of because this is what he's theorizing. And then local legend also says something very, very similar. Whoa. Some people are like, okay, let's be real. There's probably a serial killer. Right. Or maybe it was one of the native big cats, the bobcat, the lynx, or the maybe the now apparently extinct catamount, which is very similar to a mountain lion. But there would be likely signs of a struggle or of an attack. You know, mm-hmm. the, that doesn't just people's tracks don't just disappear. There's no 
right. left remnants of clothing or signs of a struggle or drag marks. Like normally there would be. Mm-hmm. And in this case, there's not for any of the cases. Yeah, there's nothing. And so no one saw anything at the time of the disappearance, even though there were many witnesses in the area. No one heard anything, which is another thing. You would hear an attack of an animal. And you would hear you like would the likely hear scream, yeah. The screams of someone being attacked, yes. Another thing that's interesting is that in this area, people do report a lot of strange noises and a lot of strange odors, hmm. which brings me back to a century before the disappearances. Oh. So now let's head back to around the time of the logging and people sort of moving out of the area, but then also before the disappearances. Mm -hmm. On November 11th, 1943, 37-year-old Carl Herrick, he went out to hunt and he goes about 10 miles northeast of Glastonbury. He's with his cousin, Henry. They're locals. They know what they're doing. They know where they're going. Uh, and they're familiar with the area. Mm-hmm. So they go up, they're hunting, they kind of, you know, get separated as they normally do. They don't hunt together arm in arm. They <laughs> spread out and then they come back to a general point and where they're going yeah. to meet. And so at the end of the day, Henry gets back to the camp. Carl does not. And as the sun begins to set and snowfall begins to dust the ground, Henry's patience then turns to concern and he contacts the police to go look for his cousin Carl. And for three days, they search without a trace. And on the third day, Carl's cousin actually stumbled upon his body while searching amongst <gasps> the, the authorities. Oh. Carl's body is laying on the ground, dead. His rifle is leaning on a tree 70 feet away from him. And near him are huge tracks. <gasps> tracks that they think, at the time, Henry's like, I have no explanation for this. A giant bear? Big I don't butt? know. A giant <gasps> bear? Mm-hmm. Oh, Carl's body is then examined. His cause of death, he was squeezed to death. His lung was punctured by his own ribs. (gasps) So he was embraced and squeezed to death. Oh. Then some 50 years later, so 50 years after this happened to Carl and 50 years before all the disappearances in the mid-1900s, 40-year-old John Harbour, he's at his deer camp. He's in the southern part of Glastonbury. It's very popular to hunt in this area. And he's hunting with his brother and a family friend. He's within earshot of them, but he wasn't visible in the woods because, you know, they they were all kind of mm-hmm. spaced in even distance and walking into the woods together. Mm-hmm. John's brother and his friend are surprised when suddenly they hear a rifle shot in the air, mm-hmm. followed by John screaming, I've been shot. <gasps> so they rush towards the direction of his sound and they're searching for him and he wasn't far away. But they couldn't find him. And they're searching Whoa. and searching and searching. They cannot find him. Even though they knew exactly where he screamed from and he wasn't that far, they just couldn't see him through the woods. It's not until 11 a.m. the next day when his body is found. He's laying against a cedar tree, but he'd clearly been moved from the spot where he'd been shot, which was a distance away. Uh-oh. His gun was placed neatly beside him. So something was in the woods and it was something big. And a little bit before this... Around the same general time of the 19th century, there was a stagecoach that had been traveling near Glastonbury when a huge rainstorm hit and it washed out the road. And so the driver who was outside, like seated up on the stagecoach by the horses, he was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get really wet. Let me grab my lantern, pop down into the coach. We got to stop. We kind of ride this, got to ride this out a little bit because we can't see where we're going. And the road is messed up. 
So he grabs his lantern, he goes into the coach to avoid getting drenched. And when doing so, he notices uh, that there are tracks along the road just in front of him. And they're fresh. They're unfamiliar. They're really large. The rain had been going for just a few moments. And so whatever this was had essentially had to have been there after the rain had started and before this man had just gotten there. He sees these tracks and he's like, oh, that's odd. And then he notices that these tracks are actually spaced pretty far apart. So whatever it was, was this massive creature. And he's like, oh, God, that's even creepier or whatever. The horses then start to become a little bit flustered. They start to appear a bit spooked. Mm -hmm. They grow in concern. And eventually these horses are full on freaking out. They are in a wild panic. They are disturbed by whatever is nearby. So the passengers in the carriage are like, we want to see what's happening. And so they start to exit the carriage. And as they do, a very heavy and hard blow is given to the side of the carriage. Everyone freaks out and they run out. They're grabbing each other, huddled together, terrified. Yes. And the horses are going wild and they're all grabbing each other, freaked out, what just attacked the side of the carriage. And as they're all together, they see right near them an eight foot tall, hairy creature who then turns and heads back into the woods. And so was this a monster? Maybe. Was this Bigfoot? Well, let's think. There's a lot of evidence that it could be Bigfoot (laughs) or a Bigfoot because strange disappearances. Mm -hmm. No, No to little evidence. Moved and injured bodies. Bodies returned after weeks. Bad smells, weird noises. And also, let's remember that there are these interdimensional theories about Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. He's essentially speculated to be this interdimensional creature. Right. So it does sound like Bigfoot. Wow. And if you don't believe the sightings from the 1800s and the numerous disappearances and sightings from the 1900s, then I'm going to tell you something a little bit more recent that might convince some of the listeners out there that are still like, ah, things might have been lost in translation over all of these uh, centuries of history. In 2003, a man named Ray DeFresne, he's actually from a town right next to where I grew up in Vermont. And he's driving down Route 7 near Glastonbury when he sees what he thinks is a man in a snowsuit, kind of like walking weird, stumbling onto the road. And this person is walking really strangely. He's tall. He's dressed all in one color. So Ray's like, this is odd. You know, no one else is around here. Mm -hmm. He's got his eye on him. He's driving down the road. Ray gets closer. He realizes that this person is covered in fur. (gasps) Why is there someone in a gorilla suit, he thinks. (laughs) But then he realizes that there's absolutely nothing in the surrounding area. This whole area, it's a ghost town. It does have a few residents, but Glastonbury, I think, has like six residents. The near Some of the nearby towns have like two people that live there. Whoa. There's nothing. No one would just be randomly walking on the side of the road in a gorilla suit. So he is really confused and he's trying to make sense of what he'd just passed. He was a hunter and had been a hunter since he was 15 and he knows the local animals. So at first he was like, a guy in, in a gorilla suit, uh, a bear walking on its hind legs. No, it didn't look like any of that. And so then he starts to think and put the pieces together. This has to be Bigfoot. This has to be this creature that so many people see. No one believes. No one can catch evidence of it. And so he starts to report it. People attack him immediately and are like, you're just attention seeking and all Mm. this stuff. And he regrets not going and turning back and trying to get some piece of evidence. It's probably good that he didn't because based on these stories, I mean, I clearly you never, want better for you now. And there's no understanding of the capabilities of Bigfoot, right? Yes. You know, there's a lot of... He's just trying to hug them and then he ends up killing them and squeezing them too tight. 
we have no idea. And if he does have the capability of, you know, even even moving, if he is some sort of interdimensional creature, what other capabilities does he have? Can he just disappear? Yeah. Reappear in your car as you're going 60 miles no, an hour down the road you. and squeeze you to death? We don't know. And so it's best to just avoid. I Corinne, think. this is something I never thought I'd hear you say. Okay, well, I've seen way too much about <laughs> I think I think like all creatures out there, there's an opportunity for good, there's an opportunity for bad. Right. So not all Bayfoots are bad. No. But this who knows if this specific one walking down the road was, but the ones that got the previous hunters yeah. and possibly were responsible for the other five disappearances in the nineteen forties were or was. Yeah. So he had this experience in the 2000s. And also there was another report that was almost the exact same as Ray's in 1994 given by a boy that was going through the local area. So there's a lot of Bigfoot sightings, a lot wow. of UFO sightings, and a whole lot of unexplained deaths and disappearances. And so it is speculated that the strange disappearances in the Glastonbury area are the result of paranormal phenomena, a rock acting as a portal, possibly <laughs> Bigfoot, a UFO, UFOs, we don't know. Whoa. But the paranormal activity and the sightings continue to this day. Terrifying voices appear on dead air radio. What? Strange figures are seen. Planes crash. Large cairns deep in the woods are are seen predating like human history of these like mossy stones just built up in these weird patterns. And even a human skull was discovered on a tree stump. Whoa! What? There's a lot happening. People <gasps> get lost one of the in missing the missing people's skulls. Maybe I'm sure they did some sort of forensic evidence right. on it. But I, yeah, creepy. But it was essentially placed there, like it was on display. Whoa! People will get lost in the woods. People who have been lost in the woods and survived say that they believed that they were walking in the right direction and had only walked the amount of time that it would take to go a few miles. But they would then appear impossibly far away. So what would have been a two-mile distance, suddenly they're seven miles away in an area that they could have never gotten to. And as they're trying to, once they like reorient themselves and are making their way back to the trail, they don't recognize anything around them, which they would have if they were just backtracking, they would have passed all of that stuff. So it's essentially like this sort of like time warp, glitch in the matrix sort of thing. Very, very wrinkle in time-esque. Campers in the area have also been reported by other campers who are with them, other friends, that they that someone in their group starts to act out of character. Someone will start laughing and screaming in their sleep. People become disoriented. Very odd behavior happens that has never happened outside of this area to people. And so that is why you should avoid Glastonbury Mountain, wow. the Bennington Triangle area. What is up with the Northeast. I don't know. There's so <laughs> What's much. happening? I don't I feel like there's a lot of areas that have a lot of activity, but for how small New England is, and and also like let's think about the the Southeast too, like Savannah, Charleston, that area. Mm -hmm. There's such concentrated pockets of cr just absolute paranormal chaos. Yeah. Whoa. I don't know. But it's really freaky. It is, and I can't believe you want to go on and hike that trail that goes basically through this area, Corinne. I don't know. I know why you want to see Bigfoot, stories. and I know you want to meet your boyfriend in real life, your other boyfriend. But <laughs> I have no explanation for you. Yeah, maybe it's trying to draw you there. Ooh, that's really creepy. And actually, that reminds me of one part that I didn't talk about because, again, like I said, I could have written another eight pages. So that little boy, Paul, 
his dad had actually said that in the few days prior to Paul going with his mom on this little trip near Glastonbury Mountain, Paul could not stop talking about the woods. And that had never happened before, but he just kept talking about the woods, talking about wanting to go there, talking about needing to go there. And so his dad was like, there was this unforeseen and unexplainable draw that he suddenly had inexplicably towards this mountain. And perhaps this is what led to the demise of my son. This is what led to his disappearance and assumed (gasps) death because the mountain was suddenly calling for him. Isn't that freaky? Oh my gosh. I hate that. That's so terrifying. Corinne, you cannot go. I will not allow you to go. I know. I'm not going to actually now that you reminded me of Paul being called to the mountain and then me just saying all these terrible things and then being like, I should go. And that's out of character for me. I'm not going to now because that sounds You're a little too going. sus. You're not allowed. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, ghost very. towns, man. <laughs> Don't go. Whoa. So creepy. So scary. And that one is very different from like mm-hmm. the Wild West ghost towns that I feel like are more common. Like that is so. Yeah. A ghost town ooh, caused so unsettling. by human destruction that already had a lot right. of native lore surrounding it. It's not like the native people were like, oh my gosh, this is a, a horrible place post- people coming in there was always these tales of this one particular area being bad and then all of this humans came in it was bad then blood murder missing people destruction scary scary scary. ufo and now i don't want to step on any stones no no they used to say like step on a crack and break your mother's back now step on a stone you're gonna be transported to a different dimension i know tm creepy tm Wow. I have a listener story and it's very funny that you just brought up Charleston because it is called My Charleston Ghost Adventure. Ooh. I couldn't really find anything specifically ghost town related. So I did more like abandoned building related. Awesome. So this is from our listener, Robin. And she says, hello, ladies. I have a story to share that I hope you'll enjoy. On November 21st, my friend and I, let's call her B, decided to go to Charleston, South Carolina for a quick day trip since it's only about a three-hour drive. We booked a room at the Mills House Wyndham, which is rumored to be haunted. My friend B is sensitive and she's been told by a medium that she has the door cracked and if she wanted, she could open it up fully. But B does not want to do that. She's afraid of what she might invite in. We feel you. B wanted to test her sensitivity, so she didn't look up anything about the hotel and I booked a ghost tour for us and told her nothing about what we would be doing. We checked into our hotel, which is a gorgeous pink building, and the hallways on the inside reminded me a lot of the Stanley Hotel. I didn't even feel anything, and B didn't pick up on anything either. And she had stayed at the Congress a few years ago and said she'd never felt anything that heavy before. Even I felt the denseness of the air in those stairwells. P.S. We plan to go back to Chicago and stay there again. That's where you stayed, by accident. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) totally on accident our hotel was across the road from circular congressional church which my mom and i did the graveyard tour for a month prior where neither of us felt anything so b and i decided to do a walk through the graveyard and it definitely had a different feel when you're a part of a large tour group b saw a flash of a man sitting on one of the raised tombs and she felt eyes staring down on us from the church she said it was nothing malicious or scary but just that they were watching likely making sure we weren't doing anything disrespectful Later that night, we got ready for the tour, and I chose the Old City Jail. I had actually done that tour before when I was 17, but I can't remember much of anything about it. So we walked up to the jail, and B looked at the building and asked, Are we going in there? 
She started to panic a little because she thought we were just going to do a walking tour and didn't expect to go inside an abandoned building. Sorry, B. LOL. We walked (laughs) to the side of the building with our tour guide. I took some pictures as he told us about the gallows, and B felt something lurking over her shoulder. She later told me that it was the shape of a Dementor, cloaked, and it was not human. The thing was almost taunting her, laughing like saying, Ha ha, you are going inside there. So the guide brings us inside, and the first thing he tells us is the time he saw a thing leaning over the railing that didn't look human. It was robed and skeletal, and he described it as the farrier of souls to the underworld. The reaper looked at him and then ran down the hallway, and that was all that he saw of him. The tour guide told us that the thing isn't interested in us because it isn't our time. But we continue on the tour, and B continues to feel like something's touching her arm in the room where Lavinia Fisher was kept. She kind of got uncomfortable, and once we were moving on, she was like, get me out of this room. The rest of the tour went smoothly for her. I felt a coolness against my legs in one of the hallways. And once we got outside, B said, I didn't feel anything. That room was empty. We started to walk away, and she said her chest felt heavy. We ignored it and kept going. The next morning, we checked out of the hotel and asked the receptionist about any hauntings, and they told us the floor three had the most activity. And get this, room 333 is the most haunted. On our way back home, I told B I was going to put on the Charleston episode of Two Girls, One Ghost, and it had been a while since I listened to that episode, but I wanted her to hear the deeper stories of Lavinia. Crin, you ended the story stating that sometimes the jail goes completely silent because the collector yeah. is there to gather the souls, and they are all hiding. B got chills because that's exactly what she felt in that one hallway. We all kind of just looked at each other. Did she maybe meet the actual Grim Reaper? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this story. I've attached pictures from the hotel, graveyard, and the jail, where if you zoom in, I see a figure with glowing eyes in the bottom left window. And I've attached a pic of my good luck black cat, Kylo, for Sabrina. Thanks for listening, Robin. Okay, not only do you see an image, but there's in the one... I think she did zoom into it, but there's like a man at the bottom. Oh, wait. Let me look for it's the, the last picture. I'm just so distracted. Yeah. Oh, God. It does look like an outline of a man kind of like running forward or like hunched forward. But inside of the jail bars, it looks like, honestly, it kind of looks like it might be like Lavinia Fisher. Like it looks like a black sort of dress or like top, some exposed chest, and then someone's face looking out between one of the squares. I'm to turn my brightness up. Oh, no. And as I said that, your audio. No, 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 no. What? What's happening? Your audio is so distorted. I hate when this happens. Keep talking. Hello. Good thoughts. We are protected. Good life. The second I went to go put it up to the microphone to see if the microphone would like pick up the distortion, it stopped. Oh, my God. That always, I feel like that always happens to you. Like usually... I feel like it happens more often where I'm saying something and then it gets all yeah. jumbled. Okay, well, I'm not Very turning my brightness creepy. up. Oh my gosh. Well, I actually almost interrupted you in Robin's story because when, as soon as you were saying in the very beginning that her friend B saw this like collector or not, she didn't say collector at times, but like this dark figured creature that wasn't actually a person. And then the tour guide was like, oh, yeah, this is essentially the Grim Reaper. I immediately wanted to interrupt you and be like, yes, because it goes there to collect the spirits and the spirits hide and the whole jail goes quiet and all of the door guides know this. Oh my gosh. I can't believe she saw it. Whoa. It's one thing to see the shadow figures or the image of someone or to feel like a tug because I feel like there's, I mean, 
we did an episode on it and I already talked about my mm-hmm. experiences and Marissa's experiences because Marissa, our friend Marissa accompanied right. me there. But we had so much happen mm-hmm. to us in the time that we were there. So I feel like a lot of people experience stuff on the tours. But to see the collector that kind of seems like this figure, this the yeah, one paranormal nope. creature entity that is kind of almost lore-like that people, not many people experience – for her friend to see it and then be validated moments later by the tour guide and then to listen to the podcast and learn about what that actually is. That's so full circle and so, so uh, it is It is one of those things that's like sad that B is just so open that even though she's closing the door for the most part, she can't avoid it. Yeah, I know. And also, I wonder what that's like to come face to face with essentially this collector i don't think i ever want to find out yeah something that comes and collects human souls and you yourself have a human soul it's just what is the i don't mean to get super spiritual (laughs) but obviously we believe in spirits and ghosts and all of that and so it makes me wonder what the difference is between a spirit that is outside of the skin and organs that we have now versus a soul in the body and how like us being flesh and bone protect our soul from being taken or does it like what are the rules i don't know grim reaper just has like a negative connotation for me because it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it's leading you to like a good place it feels like it's taking your soul and leading you to a dark place yeah whereas you know we've heard stories of like near-death experiences where people like see a light and they're guided not by a grim reaper but by their loved ones who are waiting there for them and that feels positive and good whereas grim reaper just seems negative but it does make me wonder if he kind of got a bad rep the grim reaper got a a bad rep yeah i don't know and maybe it's just there to help if others are busy or if there are particular souls that are new maybe that don't have those connections strong connections to help them over maybe it's just like i just came to company but then how do you know because like what if you know how we talk about how demons always like manipulate and pretend they're like there to help you or whatever like what if you do Mm -hmm. pass away and then the grim reaper meets your soul and is like i'll take you to heaven and then it's actually taking you to hell but you're like you're like oh maybe you were misrepresented in life and i'll give you a chance but then there's no coming back from it so the plot of the good place i guess so (laughs) yes yes basically (laughs) oh man i don't know wow but that's this podcast. We just don't know. <sighs> but I have an email from Kelsey. And I'm going she sent a couple experiences, but I'm I'm going to skip around her email a little bit so that we can get to the ghost town Ooh. portion of it. Um she says, Hi, my name is Kelsey. And once I found your podcast, I was hooked. I'm pretty shy and introverted, so I don't normally tell anyone my experiences, especially because I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable or scared. And then I'm going to skip a a few of the things she said, but what's interesting is what you just read, the email you just read referenced the old jail as having room 333 as the most haunted. And uh, Kelsey literally references not that room, but the number 333 and says that she finds it lucky in her life. So wait, that's, you know, what is interesting is that in the last story I read, the hotel room that was haunted was 333, but it wasn't really like they didn't stay there. It was just mentioned so maybe kelsey's getting some luck oh and also why is this number chasing us i don't know i don't know know either okay all right so she says this one takes place when i was around five to seven years old 
My mom and dad took my brother and I on a road trip to Bodie, the ghost town, which we did in episode 80. Mm -hmm. My parents always took us on really neat road trips growing up and we would stay in old hotels on our way. I have a ton of little stories of me hearing people and dogs that no one else did. But let me tell you my experience of how I remember Bodie. We arrived at this fun Western-like town. It was full of people dressed up in costumes to look like they fit in, and all of these shops that were open for business and people working and coming from the mine. My dad and I held hands as we walked through, smiling and just really enjoying ourselves in this fun town with all of the quaint qualities that we really liked. I thought it was this sort of bigger version of Knott's Berry Farm ghost Mm -hmm. town area with all of these employees dressed up. Meanwhile, my brother and my mom walked behind us and they seemed to just not really be enjoying this place like my dad and I were. And to be honest, we always sort of made fun of my brother for being a Debbie Downer. Anyway, let's jump forward to my early 20s. Me and my boyfriend were having this really nice talk with my parents and it brought up a bunch of memories of Bodie and how full of life that town was. And one day I would love to see it again. My mom and dad look at each other and then back at my boyfriend and I and ask me if that's really how I remembered the town. And I thought, well, did I just completely make up one of my favorite all-time memories? So my mom grabs the book of Ghost Towns and opens it up to Bodie. She shows me and my boyfriend, and he was like, oh, neat, but that seems a little different than what you described. I was shocked to see the photos. It was bare. It was lackluster. I mean, it looks like a typical ghost town in these photos. I looked at my dad and I was like, but you remember, right? We had such a good time. There were so many people. The smells that I remembered, it smelled like tar and fresh baked food. My My dad smiled at me and said, sweetheart, only you and I saw those people. We got to experience Bodhi as it was. Your brother and mom saw it how it is now. Whoa. Oh my God. Chills. I know. Me too. I have chills. (laughs) And now it makes sense why my mom and my brother were not nearly as enthralled by the town as my dad and I were. But truly, I don't know if I want to go back now. I feel like possibly my dad and I had walked into this parallel universe that day because I don't really see spirits like that all the time. I'm definitely more sensitive and I feel like I'm more of a feel the vibes type of gal, but I'm not sure that I want to be let down if I go and I don't have the same experience. But thank you for reading my story. I just want to thank you so much for the great podcast and for making the unknown a little less taboo and a lot more fun. See you on the other side, your ghouly friend, Kelsey. That is amazing. Isn't it? I mean, I'm glad that it wasn't just her experiencing, like her and her dad together experienced Bodhi. They totally time, not time traveled, but like. That's what it feels like. Kind of in like a time warp. Yes. At the same time that her brother and her mom were behind Uh them experiencing the now. They experienced the past and the other two experienced the present. And I will say, you know, I only read half of Kelsey's email Uh, But she did say earlier on that her dad is very sensitive and has had past Mm. life readings and all of this stuff. So it makes sense that her dad also was very tuned in and had the ability to see this alongside Kelsey. Wow. Isn't that just amazing, though? The idea that you can go to a place and just kind of rewind and get to walk through it and see it as an observer, like walking through as if it it was an attraction. Like you get to see it at at its prime. I don't blame Kelsey for not wanting to go again just because, yeah, I mean, that's such a special memory. Like, the fact that she remembers the smells mm-hmm. so distinctly, it's yeah. almost like you want to keep it like that. But then I'd also be so tempted to go back just because I, it's like now that you know the truth, is there some connection between you and that town, Kelsey, that permits that to happen? Yeah, I wonder she should get a past life mm-hmm. reading done because I feel like her dad has had them done. And if she, 
I wonder if her and her dad had been residents of Bodhi. Mm. And for some reason, they were just able to see what their lives were like, like as if they were just their normal residents. And I wonder if all of the ghosts at the time or or people that that were walking through Bodhi, I wonder if there was this sort of like wrinkle in time where her and her dad were who they were mm-hmm. in the past. And they were walking through and everyone else was just like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Mary Lou yes. and Steve walking through. And then there was this sort of like protective shield behind them of her mom and her brother who weren't able to sort of like travel back in time with them because they didn't live there ever. Their souls never did. So fascinating. I want to hear more stories about that. If you've been in a place and like time warped like that. It's very glitch in the matrix. It reminds me of a lot of stories that we've read where people walk into diners and everyone like turns and looks at them and you're like, this isn't right. This is not right. Oh, if you have an experience, please email it to us at two girls, one ghost podcast at gmail.com. I want to hear. We both want to read everything. I want to see pictures. Corinne does not. So give us a warning. Tell us that the <laughs> picture is attached and you know I will click on it. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. It's hugely helpful. Please do it for us. Please do it for everybody whose podcast you listen to. It is immensely helpful. And also word of mouth is huge, huge, huge. Yeah. We also have Facebook and Instagram and social media. Corinne is starting a TikTok for us. So uh, stay tuned. I'm going to try. I might give up in a few weeks, but we're here to see what it's <laughs> we like. We also want to say thank you to Brooke Foster and Eric Foster. Thank you for editing our podcast. Thank you to your whole team at FR Digital. We're so appreciative. See you on the other side. Very smooth.